Welcome back to podcast number eight. Yes, I know, I know it's been some time, but I have been all over the place, so I apologize for not getting a podcast out every single week, um, but it's probably not going to happen because I'm shooting tons of videos for you guys, and I think I can explain a whole lot more, but this is also fun, so I'm going to try to do at least one or two a month um, and make them packed Full of good stuff. So today we have uh, Moto Man coming on, George, my friend. And if you remember, if you listen to the TST podcast I did a while back, he was also on. This guy has forgotten more about cars than I'll ever remember in my life. Um, and he's super cool. And the thing is, uh, he's got that same sort of uh, cerebral thing that I like to bring to cars where it's like, what can I learn from this? How do I grab this knowledge and be able to use it to help me in the future. And what we're going to talk about on this particular podcast is I love how he dives back into history. I'm also a little bit of a history buff. When I say buff, I mean, I love the history, but I don't know enough about it. And I love to hear from people who do. So what what, what George is going to do is he's going to take Cadillac and rip it apart and basically show how it started, why it became so successful, how it fell from its beautiful glory of crazy big cars and then has now reinvented themselves so it's kind of a great um business little story because i'm always big into business and history and it's about cars so i was like we have to talk about this so we're gonna talk about that with him in a little bit but first off i want to go over our topic of the day and that's gonna be headlight repair i've gotten hundreds of emails from people asking about headlight repair and just fyi it is not as crazy or difficult or i'm trying to think of a better adjective then you think everybody listening to this podcast can totally do headlight repair. But before then, let's chat about the things that have happened since the last, last podcast. And that was with Mike Musto going to Pebble Beach. In the meantime, uh, I've gone to multiple car shows and I've done some pretty cool videos. Now, the last video I just did that came up, uh, I want to say 24 hours from now or ago, was the 4GT inspection. And essentially... Uh, hopefully you've watched the video. If not, you got to go watch it. It's, it's getting uh, lots of good play, and it, it's fun. Essentially, long and short of it is I got on a plane, uh, went to Pittsburgh for the day, or not even for the day, for three hours, really, and inspected this car. Now, the thing is, one, I didn't cover all of it in the video because I did have to actually do some work, and it's hard to turn the video on when you're having a conversation with somebody. They think you're a wacko. Um, but uh, at the same time, one of the things that was a constraint, and you'll see it in the video, is I did it at a... Porsche dealership, and this was a Ford GT. Um, so they didn't exactly have the equipment to lift the car up properly because there's a windage pan or windage tray underneath for high speeds, obviously. And they got a little squirrely lifting it, and I was like, whoop, let's not lift it if you're not 100% sure. Because I like to take take the pan down. <clears throat> More importantly, I like to go to a Ford dealership usually when I do these type of things, meaning whatever the car is, if it's a Porsche, I go to Porsche. If it's a Ford, I go to Ford, and so on. Uh, because they'll have the diagnostic tools and I'll be able to verify ECUs and things of that nature. So you'll look at it and say, hey, this is a really great, uh, I go through tons and tons of stuff, but there's lots of things I go on uh, that are not exactly in the video. So anyways, check that video out. Tons of fun. And uh, got to drive around in a 4GT for a little while. Not too bad. Now, I also shot a video today on Sunday, my day off. Uh, and I think... I'm mentioning it in the other video. I was watching a little bit of football, and the Giants were getting hammered 38 nothing. So I said, "What? we're going to go outside and do some work now. Uh, so I basically ripped apart the passenger side door, and I have to edit this video and put it up there, but you guys are going to love it. And it has nothing really to do with detailing. It's more about 
doing it yourself. So I have the manual, like the Bible, if you will, um, for the 964. Got everything you can ever imagine in there. And we did a bunch of work. I went up to Lime Rock Race Park, which is by far my favorite track. It's the most amazing thing in the world because it's a park as well as a racetrack. And I love hanging out and blah, blah, blah. So I love that place. Anyways, I went to a concourse there and it was unbelievable. It was fun. I saw a lot of people and a lot of, a lot of wonderful people watch the show. So that's cool. And I closed the door on my passenger side. And when I closed it, it sounded like this. I was like, uh, something, something fell inside the door. And I was like, this is not good. So of course I tried to raise and close it and clearly the window didn't work, but the window when we drove home just slowly creeped its way down and it was open. Naturally it was raining that day too. Um, so I had my father-in-law kind of hold it up there. It was not cool. So when I got home, I ripped the door apart and basically found that inside the door, an old rusted metal piece, which was the piece that actually clips onto the bottom of the glass and goes into a, a frame sort of, uh, sort of thing where you, when you, uh, you know, put power on it, it'll bring the window up and bring the window down. So the thing that was doing that, holding that, uh, rusted and bent and it bent almost 90 degrees. So when it would go up and down in the skinny door frame, it would catch the sides of the door frame. So I had to pull it all apart. And, uh, the next video that's coming out next week, will will show you, uh, the actual work that I did, I think it's just kind of fun to change gears a little bit and show people that we can work on our cars too. So anyways, we're going to talk about that, uh, in the next video. And we took a two week hiatus from drive clean. Uh, hopefully by the time this comes out, um, we'll be right along. I'm going to turn around and look, I think, yeah, when do I come out? It comes out in another week, the next drive clean, and they are good. I'm very happy with these. We're doing motion graphics. We kind of wanted to go back and film a couple of different things. So that next video is going to be, what's the next one? can't decide. I can't remember which one is which, but it's either going to be, I'm pretty sure next week is going to be the swirl remover, uh, how to take swirls specifically out of the black Porsche. And we're going to do a uh, buffer review, meaning the polishers. We're going to talk about the pros and cons and where they created and where they came from, which is kind of cool. And then I believe the last video we're going to say for last is like a three-day shoot. It's a really big shoot on a KTM motorcycle. Um, and going, uh, off-roading and that sort of thing. And there's mud everywhere. And we talk about how to clean uh, a motorcycle properly. Awesome. It's, and it's very beautiful at the same time. We have an amazing DP, uh, director of photography, amazing DP who, uh, just really goes overboard. And it's just, it's, it's just a beautiful episode. And, and, uh, anyways, I hope you guys enjoy that. So that's where I've been running around like crazy. And I got an email this afternoon from a gentleman, uh, who has a Porsche and he sent me this and he goes, forgive me, Larry, for I have sinned or something along those lines. And <clears throat> it was basically a, a Porsche wheel. And I shot another video too. I need to, I need to post up there. I got so many videos I got to show you guys, but essentially it's this video. Uh, and we do this one on my car again, is the decision between whether you should clean the car, meaning wipe the car down or not leave it, leave it dirty until you do it properly. So it's, it's kind of the, I say it's drawing a line in the sand. Hey, when do you wipe it down? Because your OCD just like can't, it's exploding. Like I have to touch it kind of the love mark thing versus washing it down because it's dirty. And when, when does that activate for you? When does one activate and one uh, doesn't? So in this particular case, this guy had these brand new Porsche wheels and he was very excited to drive around and do whatever. And he couldn't have the patience and that's okay to uh, wash them properly, soap, water, etc., because of the level of dirt. 
and he wiped them down. Now, I think he wiped them down with a scrub or a, uh, I don't want to say Brillo pad. He, he wouldn't do that, but something along those lines, or it was like a scrub, uh, like the backside of your, uh, you know, that green, it's got the sponge and it's got the green side on the other with a little bit, little bit scuff or scowl pad. So I'm not really sure what was going on there, but it was also dirt on there. So when he scrubbed him, he scratched the hell out of his, his wheels. That's the moral of the story. So we're talking about, um, and I'm going to try to help him out here, but essentially on new wheels like that, you can, um, I would at least give it a shot. I, I don't know until, you know, every car is different, every wheel is different kind of thing, but he should definitely try to use a three inch pad, some leveling fluid or some compound of your choice. And, uh, I would love to use a pneumatic meaning air and just get into every single little nook and cranny. You might be able to get that out because generally speaking, those wheels, at least the ones he sent me, look like they were clear coated. So essentially it's clear coat, really, really scratch clear coat. So you can get that out, but not good. So you, the point of the story or the moral of the story is make sure you clean your car, clean your parts, clean your wheels, clean whatever it is when it needs it. And when you do it, when you do that, make sure you do it properly. End of the story there. So anyways, we, uh, I'm going to try to do some stuff with that. Anyways, we're talking all about the past. Now let's move forward. Headlight restoration or repair. People have been sending me so many emails about this. I have to shoot a video. You know, the reason why I'm not shooting a video is because I don't have a car with it. And the reason why I don't have a car with it is because I do the proper things that we're going to talk about now to keep them looking not yellow. I'm using air quotes. You can't see me. So I keep walking around town with my wife and I see these cars. She thinks I'm crazy because I'm going to go over and uh, I keep putting things on their windshield like, hey, I will fix it. And I think they think I'm going to do it and like charge them. But I'm like, hey, if you let me film it, I will fix this in like 20 minutes and you'll have brand new lenses and you won't have to pay $1,500 or whatever. But I think people think I'm crazy. Anyways, once I find really, really bad uh, headlights, I'll do a video on it. For now, we're going to chat about it just to prime the pump a little bit and get and get us in there. So the big thing is, why does this happen? And there's multiple factors on that. Why, why do headlights turn yellow? And again, I'm going to try to talk about as many as I can free flow here off the top of my head. But one of the big factors is where are you? Meaning there's multiple businesses that exist in Florida. Why? Because there's lots of sun and lots of sun eats up or beats up, if you will, the UV coating or protection that was originally on there. So generally speaking, they last three, four, five years kind of thing. But that's also a factor. Now I get a lot of emails that I feel like I'm getting in that same mode. It's very hard for me to give strategic advice, let's use that word, or smart advice to people because I don't know the history. I don't know what the current conditions are. Meaning in, if you're in Florida, and I'm talking about any you know scratch or what have you or how to protect the car, you know, you you have to take all the information and make a decision based on that. And sometimes I don't get all the information. So how does it, why does it uh, yellow? First reason, exposure to tons and tons of sun. Second reason, if you're washing it improperly and using harsh chemicals, aka going through a mechanical car wash, that can be uh, a, a sort of a, not a secret, but a underlying issue that most people don't see. Number three, kind of big one is it's a headlight. So what does that mean? It's catching all the debris, all the rocks, all the bug splatters, all the things that, you know, happen to the, your car. Most of the impact part of the car, you would, you would, everybody listening to this would agree with me that there's going to be more impact on the bumper than there would be on the rear bump, the front bumper than the rear bumper, right? Makes sense. Logical. So 
basically the face of your car, the, the eyeballs of your car are getting pelted every time you drive. So those multiple factors, what's happening is it's beating up that protection, that uh, coating, that original manufacturer thing, let's call it, that they put on there to counteract, let's call it sunblock on your headlights. Pretty logical. Now the difference, now when I when I started thinking of this, you always see the headlights doing that. But what about the taillights? How come they don't do that? And I you know, looked into it a little bit further. So the big difference is there's acrylic and there's polycarbonate. Now acrylic, generally speaking, happens to be usually the, the taillights and things of that nature. I'm being very general here, so don't send me 50 emails that that's wrong. But generally speaking, it's acrylic in the back, and acrylic doesn't have that much of a tendency to fade. I'm sure it does it to some degree. But the one that I'm most interested in is the polycarbonate. Well, the polycarbonate is, back in the day, they used to have glass, but those days are way over for safety reasons, obviously. But now it's the polycarbonate because it's super hard, but at the same time, it's porous. And because it's so porous, in the manufacturing process, they're going to put some UV protection on there. But for all the said reasons, it starts to fade away in a certain amount of time. Now, all this can, once again, air quotes, be avoided if you properly wax and maintain and seal your lenses. Most people think, hey, we're going to seal the paint, we're going to polish the paint, all these things on the paint, 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 paint. And they sort of forget about the headlights. Also... One thing to think about, you know, when you're walking down the parking lot, generally speaking, when you see a car that has faded headlights, if you had a, if you had a, you know, bet in Vegas, if you will, are you going to bet that that car is probably neglected as well? I mean, the paint and everything else, or are you going to say it's a brand new car and it looks amazing, even though it's 10 years old? Chances are the car is also looking pretty beat up. So a little bit of math goes in and you go like, Hey, the headlights are kind of nasty. I'm guessing the rest of the car is nasty, which indicates if you reverse that, if you maintain the car and you protect the car and you protect the paint, same thing is going to happen with the lenses. It's not going to die out as fast. It's not going to get all kind of grimy, if you will. Now, one of the big questions is they say, that really looks like it's on the inside. That's gener Generally speaking, that's an optical illusion or whatever you want to call it. It's not on the inside. On very rare cases, it can be something like, uh, you know, moisture and, and things of that nature on the inside. Now, specifically with the 964, I uh, I started uh, polishing and buffing and whatever you want to call it, the headlights, because it looks to me that one side has been changed, meaning the bulbs and the lenses are different years from the le from the passenger side and the driver's side, because I stare at my car like a crazy person with the lights on, and they just don't look right. And I want to change both of them, but I'm like, hey, I'm a capable detailer. Why don't I just make the one that doesn't look the same? Maybe the one that's a little duller, make that shiny. And so I've been racking my brain. It makes me a little bit crazy. So when you see my lights on, you'll see that they're a little bit different. And my wife doesn't see it, but she, what she does see is a crazy person staring at headlights. But <laughs> but I took them off and I, and I polished them. It looks pretty good. But going back to the inside, I pulled the whole headlight off and I didn't want to break the seal because that's another big thing. Generally speaking, the, the the degradation is on the outside, not the inside, because the the lenses are sealed. So, anyways, I pulled the light off and I pulled the the bulb out. That's pretty much the only way to get in. I'm using air quotes again. So you pull it out. I pulled the bulb out and then I stuck one of uh, the wheel willies or one of uh, my tools with a rag in there and tried to clean the inside of the lens. And it turns out the inside of the lens just had this film of 22 years of whatever boogers on there or something. 
Um, the problem with these older cars is they have this brace that the lens or the uh, bulb of the light sits on, so you can't really get all the way in there. It was driving me crazy. Um, I sat out in the in my lawn chair just messing around with this thing for two hours. I cleaned it halfway decent with a, uh, forgive me, but with a screwdriver because I couldn't get anything skinnier in there. And it looks halfway decent. And I also polished the outside. So at the end of the day, it looks better. But um, to answer the question that I posed is, is it the inside or the outside? 99.9999% of the time, it's on the outside. On very rare occasions, especially if it's leaky, it'll be on the inside. And most of the time, you'll see water droplets. The water droplets mean, that means the the... That means it's not good. That means that you're leaking somewhere. You can repair it or pull it off, but nine times out of ten, kind of just got to do what you got to do and bite the bullet. Because uh, fixing uh, headlights, in terms of replacing them, for instance, like a I was reading somewhere, a Jeep Cherokee X year X. I don't even know what it was. It was fifteen hundred dollars, and that's totally normal. Do that on a Porsche. Oh my gosh, you have to leverage your home, the second mortgage or something. So these little repairs are, are super easy. Also remember, there's so you got the heat from the outside, the sun, right, and then you got the heat from the inside, the bulb. So you are just like roasting that coating that's on there. So it seems perfectly reasonable uh, outside the realm of putting sealant on, like normal, you know, not normal people, like crazy people like us. It's going to start to fade in yellow, just like anything else. So uh, that's kind of the big overall version of it. So how do we fix it? How we fix it is the best way I can describe it is. It, very similar, if not exactly similar, to wet sanding, uh, like that bird poo. Remember the video I did on the E39 M5 when the bird poo burned in? It's wet sanding. Now, there are things out there that are deionizers and all this other chemicals, um, and I'm not speaking to them because I haven't used them. So uh, they could be great, but the way that I've done it for the X amount of years has been very successful and taking me less than 12, 15 minutes to do a headlight. Uh is the way that I'm about to tell you. First way, first thing is clean it. Windex, what have you, whatever you want to do. Clean it as good as you can. I actually like to clay them as well because anytime I polish or sand, just a habit. And also it takes less than seven seconds to clay it because it's such a small area. So clay it down. Once it's clean and, you know, obviously devoid of, you know, bug guts or what have you, you're going to tape around the edges. That's kind of the big part. And you want to be pretty liberal with that. And sometimes I put two layers on because... Uh, a lot of the the edges are pretty fine or pretty thin, and you don't want to you don't want to go jerking around with that. So put a couple of layers on that and go one or two layers deep, if you know what I mean, into the car, so it's wide around there. Then this is where the rubber meets the road. You always want to use the least aggressive thing you possibly can. So if you have a deionizer or some magic potion and it works, then more power to you. But for me, most of the time, you do have to kind of level the surface because there's going to be pits and things of there of that nature. And you're basically removing all that old, dirty, nasty skin. But, 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 I want to make sure this is very clear because this is an email that you can pin me to the wall on. You're only going to do this process if the headlight needs it. I need to make that very clear. So, you don't want to go sanding anything if it doesn't need to be sanding. So your choices are, hey, replace it for $1,500 or live with the haze. And I'm going to do a little side note here, but I'm, every person listening to this knows about what I'm going to say. The reason why you don't like it was, one, because it looks really horrible. Two, because it makes it so that your lights aren't that bright and safety, 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 safety. Putting that aside, I think I don't need to explain to you why we need to do it. But going back to the bigger point or the bigger issue is, are you going to live with it? 
or you're not going to live with it. And if you're not going to live with it, meaning you got to fix it, then and you're not you don't have some magic potion or whatever, and you're not going to change the lens, then and only at that point are you going to use something that's abrasive. So, like anything else, I tell you, use the least amount of abrasive necessary, and then work your way down or up based on the results that you get. Off the record, I'm going to tell you, I usually start. And this comes with experience, and and I can't tell you one from another because I have to be in front of you and tell you what it is. But I've gone down as low as 600, which is really, really heavy and um, for this kind of thing, and I wouldn't recommend doing that for a novice. But a safe way to go is 800 or 1,000 grit. You just may need to spend a little bit more time. Same thing as digging a hole with a bulldozer or you're going to dig a hole with a shovel. Both are very effective. One just takes more time. 600 is the bulldozer. 1,000 is the is the shovel. 3,000 is the spoon. Everybody follow my analogy? Anyways, you're going to sand it down. Let's use a nice round number and say 1,000 grit. You might want to go a little bit heavier than that. But let's say 1,000 grit. Uh, you're going to, same thing you're going to do on the paint, back and forth, back and forth, up and down, up and down, lots of lubrication, meaning my trick, uh, it's much better to show you on a video, my trick is to make sure that the headlight is wet because I have a bucket of, of water with a little drop of soap in there just for lubrication. And then in my, in my, so I'm dumping that in my right hand. My left hand, I have a bottle of soapy water or spray wax or whatever I have around, basically spray wax usually. Um, but don't do that because it's a little expensive and you're going to blow through your nice uh, spray wax. So I'm trying to save you money here. Just put some water in there, a little bit of soap. The point is lubrication, lubrication, lubrication. And at the same time, you want to fluff, uh, you want to soak away or spray away all the crap that you're going to be pulling off all the dead, nasty UV coating crap that's died, meaning it's, you know, it's dead now. You're going to be, when you're wet sand, you want all that stuff to fluff, fluff out. Same kind of thing with the paint and it turns milky white. You want that to come off that process, off the, uh, the inside of the wet sandpaper. Otherwise, you're going to be grinding the stuff that you just took off back in. And that's going to throw off your cut sometimes, especially on really fancy paints. Um, but anyways, it, you're developing good habits by doing this, by the way. So left hand, if you're righty, left hand with a squirt bottle, right hand with your uh, sandpaper, and you're going, to, you're going to go to town, up and down, 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 up and down. And then when I do, let's say, so let's say a thousand for this example. So next I'm going to go to, I don't know, 1200 or 1500, whatever you're comfortable with. But for podcast purposes, we're going to say 1200, right? You're going to go caddy corner, meaning, so if you went north, south, north, south, you're going to go, uh, north, east, and then south, west. So a little bit of an angle, right? And then when you go to 1500 or 1800 or 2000, whatever your next one up is that you're comfortable with, you're going to go west, northwest, and then southeast, right? You're just countering it a little bit because you don't want to go too deep. You're going to start developing, uh, if you look at it very, very closely, you start developing these little ridges, which you don't want to do. But wet sanding is a whole other topic. Um, and then you're going to burnish down to something like 3000. I really like 3000. If you're in a, in a bind, 2500 is great. Uh, my my good friend Mike Phillips and I have to agree with him. If you're a professional and you're using a wool pad, you can finish off at two thousand twenty five hundred. But for our purposes here, uh, and you're going to use a microfiber cutting pad. Microfiber cutting pad. Remember, the bottom line is twenty five hundred or up. You want to go three thousand? No question. Microfiber cutting pads can do it, which again is just bonkers. And we talked about that for a long time. Uh, and multiple other episodes and podcasts and whatever. Microfiber cutting pads off the charts, amazing. So you see the difference. If you want to finish off a 2000, you can use a, um, a wool pad, little miniature three inch wool pad, and you're good to go. 
um, or if you want to finish off. Like it's, there's no right answer. It's just usually speed and comfort and that, that sort of thing. So for this purpose and this purpose alone, uh, we're just going to go with the microfiber pad method. So you're going to go 1,000, 1,200, 1,500. It's, it's kind of a lot. You wouldn't, I wouldn't really do that. So I'd go 1,000, 1,500, 2,000, 2,500. Um, and then finish off at 3000 and all, it sounds like a lot, but all this, you know, each one of those steps is a minute of actual buffing or, uh, sanding. And then I go back in with a pneumatic. I like the little roops guy. Um, but whatever pneumatic little polisher you have, microfiber cutting pad, leveling fluid, or whatever compound of choice you like, burnish it down, you know, da, 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 da. hit it with, uh, hit it with, uh, some jewelers polish and a foam pad. I, whenever I polish, I use foam polish foam. I don't use microfiber. I just personally don't like microfiber as a polishing tool. Um, polish, 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 polish with a foam pad. It looks brilliant. Amazing. The big step is then seal it afterwards. And going forward from that day forward, you really have to stay on top of it because if you don't remember, you just stripped it naked. You stripped that whole thing naked. You took off all its raggedy clothes, but now it's naked. And then you sort of put on, you know, nice new clothes, but they're thin and they're, they, he's not wearing a jacket now. So if, if you don't protect them on a regular basis and give new clothes or new protection, I don't know where I'm going with this, uh, it's going to be, the body's going to be naked again and it's not going to be good. So, um, the moral of the story is once you wet sand and go through all this, you got to keep sealant on, or you're just going to be chasing this thing. And eventually it's going to get to a point where it starts to crack. Now I've looked at a bunch of headlights and you'll See, the thing is, these little nuances here I'm trying to get you a heads up on. If you do do these things, when you look at them, you got to try to let, try to look through them. No pun intended. You gotta, you're got going to have to gain some experience. But a lot of times when I wet sand, I can see that underneath there's already starting to crack. And I'll tell the customer, hey, I can get a lot of this brown, yellow, nasty gunk off. But now that it's going to be so clean, you're going to clearly see the cracks in it. And that's sort of the thing that, you know chaps my butt as they say because it i just a lot of times when you detail a car this is off topic is the car is in such bad shape that when i come in and clean everything uh, you're gonna notice the little imperfections because i took off five million other big imperfections so you'll see the little one um that usually is a big one that i've i whittled down to a small one does that make sense so i I always scratch my head or laugh and just go, hey, it's just it's psychology or what have you. But doing this for 15 years, I'd clean the most disgusting car in the world or XYZ car in the world. And then they, you know, sometimes people come in and say, oh, you, that spot right there. And I'm like, did you not see the other 5,000 things that I did? This spot was a gargantuan spot that I made into a small spot. And then I'd, I used my judgment of all my years and said, hey, I'm not going to go any further on this you know, X $10,000 car, because if I ruin it, it's going to cost me two grand, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, same kind of idea with the headlight. So with experience, you'll be able to educate the customer a little bit more when you do this, because in some cases you'll get this thing and it will look perfect, crystal clear, but then you have cracks in it. And the cracks in it is when you sort of get to that stage where it's like, Hey, this is starting to crack now because the it's just it's you know all the the sun and the UV they're just just uh, it's gotten to a point where you know at sometimes a stain is a stain and you got to replace it. it it is what it is so anyways hopefully that gives you a little bit of a uh, you know heads up uh, on what some of the things we're going to cover uh, in the future and I need to do it with video because obviously this is very this particular one is pretty visual but at the end of the day this is what I want want you to take away make sure. If your car does not have it now, 
meaning all this nastiness we talked about, make sure you wax and seal it. Don't, it's not just the paint, it's the lenses as well. The other thing is, if you do have it, don't be scared. It's not that, it's not as difficult as it's made out to seem. And you'll be learning how to wet sand, which is a whole art in itself. And I will say, the ones that I've used back in the day, you know, the little kits or what have you, they are they are effective. I don't think they're as good as pros, obviously not. Um, but they, they do bring some effective uh, qualities to them for sure. And, you know, you put them on your, on your drill or whatever. It's, listen, you know me, I don't bash anybody. I think it's great for what it is. And if it's 15 or 20 bucks, you'll certainly get a lot out of it. But I think with the tiniest little bit of education, you can get it perfect or, or damn near close to it. Anyways, that's my little headlight repair. We got a lot more coming on that. Let's switch some gears and go into Moto Man. Uh, like I said, really ridiculously smart guy. And I just love sitting back, letting him talk and hearing how the history of all these things integrated, how Cadillac was with Buick and Buick was with Ford and Cadillac was with Ford. And it's just all those, uh, you know, smorgasbord of all these, uh, you know, car manufacturers and the jockeying that went on. And then I like thinking about, hey, you know, if I could just go back, what would I, you know, I, I came back from the future and I said, hey, Mr. Cadillac guy, you know, we sh- you should do this, this, and this because in the 80s, the Cadillacs are going to look like garbage, which I'm sure he's going to talk about. Um, and in the 70s, we started to get restrictions on, you know, gas and fuel or whatever, late late 60s, uh, early 70s kind of thing. Whatever he's, you know, I, I've, I've heard him talk a little bit about this and, the, and it's just been super fascinating. I was like, man, you got to come on. Because um, when you're done with this, you'll be like, wow, I actually know something more than I knew before about Cadillac, I'm sure. So anyways, let's make the transition and talk to Moto Man. Uh, he is awesome. Let's do it right now. Moto Man. All right, we're with Moto Man. Moto Man, are you there? I am here calling you in, uh, calling you in. I'm actually calling in from the nation's capital area. I thought you were in California. Uh, well, I live in the California Republic, but you know me, man. The longest relationship I've had with, in my life has been with an airline. <laughs> All right. Well, I thought I was, uh, thought I was three hours. What is it? Ahead of you? Three hours ahead of you. No, we're on the same time, believe it or not. I am in the, uh, probably from starting a week ago. Through October fourteenth, I will have traveled about thirty six thousand miles. That's that's more than like JF miles. That's a lot of miles. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah. I actually have you ever seen the movie uh, Up in the Air with George Clooney? Yeah, I have. Remember that scene where he's in the bar with a girl and they're exchanging their frequent flyer cards? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she picks out the one. She goes, "Oh my god, I didn't know this one existed." That's you. I have. That you have card. the one above that guy. Yeah, you know, I don't have the plane named after me yet. I'm working on that. (laughs) All right, so we, you and I, first met on um, the Smoking Tire podcast, and that was yes, we did. We met in uh, Playa del Rey, beautiful Playa. Yes, that was quite a podcast, if I remember correctly. (laughs) It was, which which was to be expected with your friend and your boy. Oh, you're putting that on me, huh? Yes, yes, because we went to the same high school. He's now my uh, my responsibility. He is yours, but but he's a good man. Actually, it's a fir- believe it or not, that was the first second time I've met him, really in life. But it was the first time I've kind of gotten to know him. Really interesting guy, not a good guy. I never got to know him before. Yeah, that. he's actually really really smart. And I said, people are like what? And I'm like, yeah, no, he's 
he's really smart. He's great on camera, but but he's like book smart. In high school, he would just he would just ace everything. And I well, went. didn't he go to University of Pennsylvania? Yeah, he went to UPenn. He went to. I was actually surprised when I heard that because you know you see him on the videos and it's a lot of cursing and jokes about girlfriends. And that. But then he said he went to UPenn. I'm like, wow, he must have a brain if he went to yeah, UPenn. Yeah, no, he's the dude's wicked smart. There's no doubt about it. There's. Yeah. All right, so I take my hat off to him. I went to a state. <laughs> All right, so our topic today is Cadillac, and I know you and I have been talking back and forth, and it's funny. You're like, hey, we'll come on. We'll talk about Cadillac and do the history, and I'm, I just – I don't want to say I'm a history buff because I don't know anything. I'm just – what's the reverse of that? I don't know anything about history, but I love when people teach me about it, so I said you have to come on and teach everybody who's listening You know, the quick version, if you will, of – how Cadillac, you know, was huge. They rose to this big thing, and then they had some issues, and now they're coming back. And what was sort of poignant as I was driving my Porsche, uh, as I do now because I'm such the Porsche man or whatever, but I was driving along and having a great time. And I was thinking about you because I looked over and I saw this Cadillac, and there was a guy um, – sadly, I can't even remember what the Cadillac was, but it was big. Does that narrow it down? The big Cadillac, the big one? The, the big Cadillac, yeah. yeah. That, that helps me out a lot. Well, it tells me that it's an old yeah, Cadillac. At least it gives me that. It's a super old Cadillac. I'm having a brain fart at the moment. And I'm a little concerned that you're thinking about me. You should be thinking about your uh, yeah. wife. I mean, you're kind of a newlywed now, aren't I'm you? five years, man. You're five, well, it's, I guess, newlywed. Yeah. So, and it, Maybe that, that explains why you got the push. <laughs> it's the five-year itch, I guess. But yeah. um, So I'm looking at this car, and the guy is super old. He's got the you know 10 and 2, his hands up there. His, his head is at the same nice. level kind of thing. And the white walls, and the car was really nice. I was like, wow, this is really clean. And I look over at him, and he looks over at me, and obviously my car's clean, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking to myself, I think the car's really cool, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't do anything for me. Like, I respect all the kind of, you know, every car, because I, I, I love how people love th- or think that their car is the best all the time. That's the cool do, part yeah. about car, like, just a break. Kind of like Giants fans. Oh, here we go. We'll get into that. The Giants, by the way, are losing 38 nothing, and I'm pretty bitter about it. Moving on. Uh, that's the New York Giants. Um, so, you know, for me, I think my car is the greatest car that ever existed, and I love the fact that I love that, and I can admire people who have, let's say, a Honda Civic with a huge wing, and it's really tastefully done and all that kind of thing. Um and they love it. I respect. Hey, those cars. You know, not they're not like my bread and butter. They're not my love. But I love that they love it. Does that make sense? So, anyways, I'm looking at this guy and I'm saying, Don't get it. He is in love with this car and he's looking at me, going, "These young punks, kind of, you know, that kind of look." What these whippersnappers and those those, those fancy German cars? I don't know what it, they ever do. With yeah, that. exactly. So I'm looking at him. Kids are probably pooping turds the size of cinder blocks <laughs> driving cars like that. <laughs> so he's looking at me and. You know, I just kind of drove away and, and thinking, you know, at their height, I mean, Cadillac was the car to have. Like, hey, you know, it's not a Cadillac oh. when you use it in a pun or whatever that, that you know, that play on words is. Um, so I said, this is a perfect topic. Talk to me. How did Cadillac start and why did they become so gargantuan and then fall flat on their face and come back? Before I give you history, oh boy. I'm going to make a statement that is the culmination of this discussion. And people are going to hear this statement, and they're going to say, man, that Moto Man, he must be drinking funny stuff in D.C. He should go back to L.A. But I'm going to say this. Cadillac and the latest CTS is the Harvard business case of how to reinvent a brand. Really? That's the statement I'm going to say. Now, 
Let's go backwards. Well, that's setting the stage right there. I, I, I just wait a second. I gotta go make some popcorn here. I'll be right back. Dude, I am. <laughs> come on, I'm a stand-up comedian. My job is to come out on stage and pop you in the All face, right. and I just popped you. Well, in I'm the popped. Face. Okay. Would you believe me if I told you that uh, the Cadillac Motor Car Company was originally the Henry Ford Car Company? Um, I want to say yes because you're super smart, but reality, no. Is that true? Remember, I went to a state school. I didn't go to University of Pennsylvania like you're talking about. <laughs> then no. So I could, and I'm a comedian, so I could be joking. But anyway, in this case, it is indeed true. Cadillac and Lincoln, A, share the same founder. Uh, B, Cadillac itself, the company, was founded from the remnants of Henry Ford's first car company. So basically, Henry Ford started a car company. It failed. His investors took it over and then renamed it Cadillac. What does that mean, by the way? Does that mean something? Um, it is some French derivation of a name of uh, a place. I think that is what it means. But it, it's in French, it's pronounced Cadillac. So if you were to go to Paris and say, I drive a Cadillac, they'd know, they wouldn't know what the hell you're saying. They would say, oh, you mean Cadillac. Really? That's yes. kind of cool. I'm sure there is a, oh, what am I saying? I am a moron. I do know what Cadillac means. Cadillac is the explorer that founded the city of Detroit. I'm sorry. Really? Yes. I, I am sorry that I completely forgot that. But yes, he is the French explorer that founded Detroit in 1701. And is he Cadillac or Cadillac? He, well, his last name was Cadillac, if, as you would... Uh, I, I, I studied German in school, so ich habe in Deutschland gewohnt, but I did not speak French. So uh, two L's, from what I understand from many ex-girlfriends that spoke French, is yak. Wow. Yes, but I could be wrong. So anyway, moving gotcha. on... Um, Cadillac is named after the French explorer that founded Detroit, which is where the car company was originally founded. And when I say Detroit, I mean up until, I want to say, the 70s, Larry, Cadillac was in the same place in a, in a building uh, right maybe a couple of blocks down from the Rensen today. Really? Uh, yeah. So basically what they did is the investors took this company – they, they, they took all the bits out of the Henry Ford company and then renamed it Cadillac. And then they brought in this guy, Henry Leland. And Henry Leland, he was an engineer, basically. Henry Leland was a car guy of car guys. He was originally born in Vermont. Um, and the guy, he, he basically could turn metal into magic. And the whole logic with Cadillac and Henry Leland was we want to really – build the best vehicle here. We want to do what Rolls-Royce was doing at the time, because you got to think about this. Um, Cadillac was founded in 1902. Uh, Rolls-Royce was already kind of floating around at that point. So they're thinking, we want to build cars for rich people. We don't want to do with this what this crazy man Henry is doing, which is, or Henry Ford is doing, which is make cars for the poor people. You know, there's a, I personally agree more with Henry Ford in business, and I think you do as well, in that uh, a very smart man once taught me this, is if you sell to the rich, you're going to eat with the poor. If you sell to the poor, you're going to eat with the rich. Ooh, I like that. I've never heard that before. And actually, kind of an aside, W.O. Bentley, who obviously invented Bentley, sold the company to, well, through bankruptcy, sold the company to Rolls-Royce, and then later designed the engines, the famous Aston Martin DB engines, he died a pauper. Really? Yes. 
He did. You're blowing my mind right now. Yeah, and uh, your boy Henry Leland, same thing. So Henry Leland founded Cadillac and made these fantastic vehicles, firsts on these cars, like electric start. I mean, this is back in a day when, you know, you're, I've met your lovely wife. Imagine your lovely wife getting out of that Porsche, getting into like something that's the size of an Escalade today and cranking it to start. So Cadillac and Henry Leland were one of the first people that were actually doing electric start in these things. What year was that about? This is back in like the teens. Wow, that's incredible. Because they had the yeah. So we're talking hundreds, a hundred years ago. They were doing this kind of didn't stuff. Didn't they have the crank before that? When you cranked it, it would just like it would like snap you would your literally arm off. crank. Yeah, it would. And women actually started cars with the crank. I mean, we're talking. You know, imagine the traps and pecs on your wife if she had a, a 1902 Cadillac. That's crazy. And I, I was thinking I was watching Leno Garage or something, and it talked about how the women, and that that's how uh, electric the first electric car got started. Or I, no pun intended. The electric car. Yeah, they were they were marketed towards women. We had we had a uh, Miller Electric uh, at the museum a year ago, and you know this thing was super simple. All it is is you you, you flip the switch and the thing would go, and that that's why they were popular back. Because you didn't you know because the women couldn't crank it because apparently it's pretty hard to crank and it's very dangerous or whatever. So oh yeah yeah I think next time you come out to L A I'm going to take you down to the vault and show you a couple of crank cars. I think it'll be funny is. We'll turn the camera on. And we'll have you crank it and see if you can get the car oh, started. God, will you embarrass me publicly? Thank you. <laughs> hey, come on! I mean, that's how I make money. <laughs> um, anyway, so so basically, uh, Cadillac started going in 1902. They started making cars, and then ultimately, it was sold to General Motors. Now, an interesting. It's it's kind of really interesting how Detroit. It's all inbred kind of stuff mm. where. If you think about it, Buick, Buick and Oldsmobile are really the oldest car companies in Detroit. But it was Buick, the company, the, the corporate entity that was turned into what became General Motors. But it was still retained as a brand. So once that was turned into a corporate entity of General Motors, the plan from Alfred P. Sloan, and this is the man that said what's good for the U.S. is good for General Motors and what's good for General Motors is good for the U.S., same guy, he basically went about on a buying spree. He bought Oldsmobile. He obviously already had Buick, so he went to buy Cadillac. He bought that from Henry Leland in January uh, in uh, in 1909 for like the low low sum of four and a half million dollars. Wow, a lot of money back then. But think about today: four and a half million dollars won't even buy you a Ferrari 250 convertible from from David Gooding. Yeah. Think about that for a minute. So he bought the car company, and then he put it as part of one of his brands and obviously the top brand. So that's in 1909. You know, think about what was going on back then. You had the economy was was really roaring because you had the Industrial Revolution. You had the stock market going at that point. You were going into a war and really what we you know what we've all learned what no matter what side of the aisle you're on, war is good for business. So you had people buying things and in the case of Cadillac they were making engines for airplanes for tanks. Um, and then later they go into the twenties and things really got to be big. And there was a lot of money being spent on fancy cars. And back then, whether it was a Cadillac or a Buick or a Delahaye, you bought a chassis and then had the body put on the car. Really? Now, granted, Cadillac was one of the few that were selling cars as a whole car with a body. Um, but long and short of the story, you had so much money coming from Wall Street, from entertainment, from industrialists, that were buying these cars, and then boom, 1929, it all shut down. Now, one thing, uh, as an aside here, and this is about Cadillac, but once Henry sold Cadillac to Alfred Sloan, and it became part of General Motors, 
he went out and he founded this tatty little car company named after his favorite president, Lincoln. Really? Yes. So Buick, Cadillac, Ford are all tied together. And to blow your mind even further, Walter P. Chrysler used to run Buick. Oh my gosh, my brain, is, I can't even... Yeah, pretty crazy, Yeah, huh? this is crazy. And FYI, you're, uh, if, if you got some oil in your, uh, your, your office there, put it on your chair. You're driving me crazy with that thing. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. I'm actually in a friend's office right now. Um, anyway, I'll move on. So we'll talk about Lincoln in another podcast, but he went off to found Lincoln, and that was obviously went out and was bought by Ford, but we'll come back to that another day. So they all spawned off each other is basically what I'm understanding. Basically, yes. Well, Walter P. Chrysler was running Buick when it was a mature car company in the 30s at that, the 20s, I think, something like that, um, but not at this time. So here we are now into the 20s. There's a lot of money coming in, and all of a sudden, the, the economy, much like in 2008, hit a wall in 2000, excuse me, in 1929, fell off a cliff. People weren't buying cars. So there were all these small car companies, and really Cadillac was one of them. They just happened to have a lot of money behind them with General Motors. There were all these small car companies, and as the huge, the Great Depression literally just wore on, they just, they went out of business, or they were weakened. So companies like Packard that were huge, they were, they, while they survived the Great Depression, they were severely weakened. But Cadillac, Lincoln, they had larger investors behind them. So they did things like, you know what, let's preserve the brand and have these fancy cars, but let's make a cheaper sub-brand, kind of like what Honda or, or Toyota have done in the reverse, where they, they had the cheap sub-brand and they made the fancy cars. So what they did is they made a Cadillac LaSalle, which was the cheaper Cadillac. It didn't bring down the Cadillac standard. There was still Cadillac was still, quote-unquote, the standard of the world. But the LaSalle was for the guy who couldn't afford the standard of the world. But still, they were able to bankroll some money and bankroll development. Because now what happened in the 30s, they did huge technological development to build cars that had 16-cylinder engines. Holy jeez. Couldn't have happened at the worst time. I mean, they were developing these things in the late 20s, and they were going to come out in 30 and 31. And imagine trying to bring out the most technological tour, like that Bugatti that you 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 are the official uh, uh, detailer of. Imagine bringing that thing out in August of 2008. That was exactly the same thing Cadillac faced in 1929. What are we, who are we going to sell a V16 to? So that's why the LaSalle came out. And then in the late 30s, Harley Earl took over design for General Motors. And he started doing crazy things, like inventing things called a concept car. First one ever he made was a Buick, actually. It was the Buick Y job. And uh, just as an aside, I would like to say that I have one of the few people, one of the few civilians that have driven it. Um, but it is the Buick Y job, and it was the first of many to come. And I bring this up because he predicted design, which is what concept cars are about, is to predict and test design without committing to the car. Mm -hmm. They did that. First with Buick, but then a host of Cadillacs. So all of the design for the 50s, you know, the Dagmar bumpers, the fins, the, sh the chopped windshields, all that stuff was on Cadillac concept cars. 
you had, now let's, let's fast forward through the 40s, because in the 40s, basically from 1939 to about 46, Cadillac was in the business of making tank engines. That's primarily what they did. And then in 46 to 50, it was primarily in the business of reissuing pre-World War II era cars, which a lot of car companies were doing. But then in the early 50s, they came out and they popped people in the face. They had the low-cut windshields. They had these beautiful fenders. They, they incorporated the fenders into the hood for the first time. And then they brought out these concept cars, like the Cadillac Le Mans, which is this long, low, beautiful, sleek car that's a two-seater. Imagine a Cadillac the size of a 59 Eldorado, the one everybody knows about from, like, what are the Aretha Franklin video. Imagine that, but a two-seater. Wow. That was one of their first concept cars. Another concept car they had, which was Henry Earl, Harley Earl was huge into the jet age. So he brought out this thing. It was... Again, one of the concept cars I got to drive, um, it is the Cadillac Cyclone, and it looked like a jet. It looked like, remember the Speedster or the Land Speeder from uh, Star Wars, the original Star yeah, Wars? Yeah. Imagine that. It had two huge jets going down the side. The doors slid forward into the car to open. It had an early derivation of a mobile telephone built in from the factory. So the, people must have lost their mind when they saw this. Oh, the, these now we're granted. I'm I'm really I'm condensing a lot of information into a short period of time. But these are all the GM Motorama cars. You guys can Google Google the Cadillac Le Mans. Google the, the Cadillac Cyclone. You can even go to our show. We did an episode with Bob Lutz um, at the Heritage Center. And that's when I drove these cars. I drove the, the Y-Job with Bob Lutz. I drove the Cyclone myself. And then we had the Le Mans out there as well. It's actually in the background. When you see me talking to Bob Lutz, the Le Mans is the, is the silver 50s-era looking um, Cadillac. So they had, there was so much of this amazing design oozing out of Detroit. They couldn't build enough of these Cadillacs. They even did crazy things like, let's go and have Italians build the bodies of our cars. I mean, think about that. An early hybrid back in the day when they could do no wrong, but they still were pushing the envelope and trying new things in design. And that all that all went through this, I want to say, the early 60s. The last Cadillac with an Italian body before the Alante uh, was in 61. So here we are in the 50s. Cadillac can't build enough of these cars. Then they get into the 60s, and the designs get to be more sleek. The, 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 now, the gavel of GM design is handed from Harley Earl to Bill Mitchell. And Bill Mitchell, man, the guy, he was genius coming into his job. He came up with stunning designs like the Buick Riviera. Came up with stunning designs like the Cadillac Eldorado for 1967. I mean, you remember that car? I mean, that was, when you and I were growing up, that was just a beat-up old car. But now they're starting to get some collector love. I'm um, looking at it now online. It's like, oh, it's gorgeous. And just, just as an aside, good friend of mine, Dave Kinney from Haggerty, um, he just went to the Bonhams auction up in Greenwich. I would say Jess was back in June. Time flies so fast. They had, I don't want to say it was a, uh, you know, a ten-point car, a hundred-point car, but it was it was more than a driver, and someone walked away with it for fifty-five hundred dollars. Oh I mean, that's the steal of the century for a, an Eldorado. Anyway, I, I, I digress. So here you have these amazing cars now. Bill Mitchell running the design, and again, they're still bringing in technology. Like here in '67, they said, you know what? We're going to try front-wheel drive 
in a luxury car for the first time. It wasn't the first time that they made a front-wheel drive car, but it was the first time in a big luxury car. So we're, now we're at a point where 67, what's coming around the corner? Fuel embargo. Oh, yeah. Now we're getting into Vietnam. The world is changing. People are not as ostentatious. So people are thinking, you know what? Maybe I don't want a car with chrome dripping off of it and big fenders. Maybe I want something that's a little bit more understated. Maybe I want a BMW 2002. Maybe I want a Mercedes 450 SEL. I mean, people were literally, I remember my aunt. My aunt lived in the Boogie Down Bronx in Riverdale. And I used to love going to visit her because she always had a Cadillac. And I thought, man, I was a, you know, a poor kid growing up on Buicks and Chevys. And to go visit my aunt and drive down to Boogie Down Bronx in a Cadillac, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. But even she was like, do I buy one of these Mercedes? They don't even have electric seats in them. Wow. So it's so crazy Cadillac, to think about that back then, that mentality. Yeah. So Cadillac, along with the entire domestic autom automobile industry, they had to keelhaul the whole machine. And I don't mean just the car. They had to get these big cars to all of a sudden fit a smaller world. And when I say smaller world, I don't mean just fuel economy. I mean fuel economy, changing tastes, changing politics, changing geopolitical relationships. So Cadillac was caught in this storm of where do we go? No one wants to buy our big rear-wheel drive V8 sedans dripping with chrome anymore. No one wants a leather bench seats with, uh, with tufted leather. No one wants that anymore. So what Cadillac tried to do, sadly, is they tried to be all things to all people. So if you remember, the first, the first change was in 77. They came out with the Coupe de Ville, the, the, the smaller Coupe de Ville. Think of it as it was the, 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 just the, the same thing, just in a smaller package. It sold relatively well. I remember my, you know, my, my, my favorite Aunt Christine, she got one of those things in like a sun yellow with a sunroof. I thought it was the coolest car. And, and then she got the the seven. Remember now, now we're talking. Then she got a '79 Eldorado, and that was the second derivation of the new Cadillac, or the the, the reduced size Cadillac, where they brought the smaller car, but still had the design touches of a Cadillac. You mark my words. I think derivations of that car will have some collector value. Will they be worth millions? No, but I do see them having some collector value. My favorite one is the one with the side with the the wheel still on the side. You know that. Uh... Oh, that's that's the those are custom bodies. Are yeah. they Even Cadillac didn't do that's that. That's hard. To, that's <laughs> hard to look at. <laughs> so they had these. They they started doing these smaller cars, and and you know what? Believe it or not, that '79 Eldorado it sold very well, along with the Oldsmobile Toronado derivation of it as well. Um, but then they got into the '80s, and that's when American consumers, with a couple of a couple of bucks, started to make a beeline to BMW, to Audi, to Mercedes. And they were like, you know, even though I have these smaller Cadillacs, I still want something European. And that's really when Cadillac tried to be all things to all people. That's when you had the first Cimarron, where they said, well, okay, let's just take a small car, put a Cadillac badge on it, and just see what happens. And, and as we know, know fell well, it didn't sell very well at all. It's now the brunt of many jokes. And they tried to downsize the Eldorado and the, uh, and the, and the Seville even further. In 85, they came out with these really small, they're almost, 
Larry, the design was something similar to that looked like it came out of a DMV driver's manual. It's, I'm it looking at it right now. And my, they were terrible. They're, they're, this is this is really horrible looking. Yeah. Oh, they they were, and and you know what? And people didn't respond, and that's when it, people weren't buying cars like that anymore. They started to say, okay, you know what? I'm just going to buy a BMW 6 Series coupe, or I'm going to buy a Mercedes 560 SEC. You know, it wasn't a matter of it wasn't so much price sensitive. It was I want a better car, and at the same time, quality started to diminish. And I, you know, I'm kind of. Again, I'm going through this very quickly. Quality started to diminish really as we got into the early 70s with Cadillac and GM because, again, it was a function of they had to keelhaul the whole system, meaning they had to tear it apart and rebuild it based on MPG and changing tastes. But they had to do it in such a short period of time because they didn't have the advantage that Honda, that BMW, that um, you name any other car company not based in the U.S., they were already engineering to a standard of mpg or a standard of smaller size mm-hmm. so they they could do it they did what gm did over a period of 15 years gm did it in three years yeah you can clearly so you, see that they tried to like stuff everything into a smaller car oh so, i mean you look at your own career did you become the best at detailing in three years yeah, i was overnight you didn't realize that oh yeah yeah i forgot about <laughs> that yeah you're telling me that i'm matt's podcast offline yeah. of course but you try to do anything quickly, you're going to fail. And Cadillac failed. And they lost their way, again, because they tried to be all things to all people. Do you think if they then, went back, they would have said, you know, in hindsight, we should have just made them bigger? Like, go the opposite direction? Is that Do you think that would have been a suitable solution? Or do you think they really needed to change? Because sometimes when people are changing uh, so drastically, it's almost... I feel like they strayed there by going, hey, we're going to have to go with a little bit of what everybody wants and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, like what you were saying. But part of me is saying, maybe if they just went bigger, maybe if they went like more gas guzzling, people would have... You know what happened? It was just, it was a function of they were in crisis mode and they were literally running around with their hair on fire. Trying to catch up. And they didn't, they didn't know what to do. Yeah. You know, here they are, a big company. And believe me, they learned their lesson. Like, let's go back to Packard for a minute. Packard did survive the Great Depression, but they were so weak when they came out. And they did crazy things like, let's make a cheaper Packard, or let's merge with Studebaker and put Packard names on Studebakers. Yeah. And by the early 50s, they were done. People know. People find that stuff out. People know. You can't yeah, – I mean, in hindsight, it's 2020, of course. But I don't know. I love taking like a business aspect like this and figuring out, hmm, what would have worked? And I'm not sure it would have worked, but – Something tells me if they had gone bigger or at least stayed the same or kind of, you know. Well, if they were, if if what they did was make a Cadillac stuck with, yeah. okay, we yes, we've got to make them more efficient, sure. But let's make a more efficient Cadillac, not just a more efficient car to meet cafe requirements. Mm. Mm. And think about the position they're in. They're a public company. They are the large, you know, second to the Catholic Church. They were the largest car, largest corporate entity in the world. So think about the pressure that that puts on you when you're the director of Cadillac. It's so crazy to think about this. It's all like coming back to me now, just looking at these horrific cars in the 80s going like, holy jeez. Oh, they were terrible. They were. Te- I mean, there were some neat ideas. They tried to make a more performance version. But again, it was based on a front-wheel drive car. And at the end of the day, are you going to buy 
a performance car or a luxury car, something you've been working your ass off to afford, and you're going to really want the same packaging for efficiency that you do with a Honda? No, of course not. So Cadillac, there were some people. Now, one thing I want to point out, a little aside here, I'm going to get to the new CTS, but I'm going to give you a little uh, hint, a little preview here. The guy who is the executive chief engineer of the new Cadillac CTS, he's also the executive chief engineer of the ATS, of the Camaro, basically everything cool in General Motors, rear drive, he's the executive chief engineer. He has been an engineer at Cadillac, at Cadillac and General Motors for 34 years. Not his first, first go-around, apparently. Not his first rodeo, but think about that. He's the engineer that's working on all these good cars and bad cars I'm telling you about. So... And again, you're a businessman, so you can appreciate this. Is it the problem of the guys building the cars that they don't know how to? Of course not. Mm. It's the direction. In management, there's an old Asian saying, a fish stinks from the head. Oh, yeah. So if the head tells you, I don't care what, you've got to make a more efficient car in 30 days or you're out of your job, what are you going to do? You're going to figure that out real fast. Real fast. And the Chrysler, you know, again, I'm going to go off on an aside here. Chrysler is making some amazing cars right now. And Chrysler, more so than General Motors, it's all the same people at Chrysler that are building SRTs and new Vipers and Dodge uh, Darts are the same people that made the K cars back in the day. Think about that. Same people. Wild. So then... All of a sudden, 1992, Cadillac comes out with a big rear-drive, European-tuned sedan, and then within a year came out with a 300-horsepower, 32-valve V8 Ford. And people were like, oh, my God, what the hell is this? What? They didn't know what to do. What year was this? 92, they came out with the STS and the Eldorado. And it was a design, it was literally... A break, a complete break from design. It was a good-looking car. The build quality was good. It had this amazing 300 horsepower. Now, the first year, they didn't have the North Star engine. It was the second and third years that got the North Star engine. And then later years, they had more power that came out of this North Star. Mm -hmm. But all of a sudden, people were taking notice. People were saying... Actually, I, I, you know, I, I think I told you guys that those cars are rear drive. I believe that they were front. Anyway, but that's beside the point. Um, the Cadillac CTS, excuse me, the Cadillac STS and the Cadillac Eldorado, they were the first cars now in, what is it? Uh, that's 92. So we're talking about 20 years. They were the first Cadillacs where people are like, hmm, that's interesting. And an interesting thing happened. If you go back to Hollywood... In 1992, you had all these executives that were driving around in Mercedes-Benz for 20 years now. And the thing about Hollywood is how are you different? you got to show how you're different. So Hollywood execs in droves went out and bought black Cadillac STSs. Yeah, that's, I'm, that's what I'm looking at right now in pictures. I'm saying, man, this is so Hollywood. These were oh, halfway yeah. decent-looking cars. I mean, Oh, it's a good-looking car. I, I just uh, A friend of mine, actually, you met her. You met Kaylee. Yes. Um, we went to get her a car. And you know, I needed to get her a hoopty. I wouldn't let her go and buy a car and finance it or anything like that. So um, I found two cars for her. I found this this Malibu, a 2002 Malibu with 49,000 miles. And then I found a, um, a 94 STS touring sedan, so the sportier model, 
that was murdered out. Chrome wheels, sunroof, black on black, wood, you know, there's a brown wood in it, and the North Star engine. And I so tried to get her to buy it. 60,000 miles. It was, I mean, the thing was beautiful. Literally, the proverbial grandmother drove the thing to church every day. How much did they want for it? $3,500. Right, I can't beat that. Can't beat it? She wouldn't buy it. I tried to talk her into it. She wouldn't buy it. She ended up getting the crappy Malibu. Um, but that's beside the point. So here's the first car that Cadillac's coming out with that, hey, people are noticing. But that was only one. You still had cars like the DeVille that really were for people in Sun City. Yeah. They were selling, but they were for people in Sun City. Then you had the Katera they brought over. I think Matt's grandmother had a Katera, didn't she? I think he said that. Oh, the yeah, DeVille was still horrible. The DeVille was still a bad car at that point. It wasn't a bad... At that point, you, I'm you started to get on better appearance. efficiency. On appearance. Appearance, is... appearance was terrible. But you were getting efficiency. Build quality was starting to get better. It's just designs weren't there. And the, the ergonomics in the interior were still for the, the Sun City or Palm Beach set. So what they ended up doing was, okay, we got to make some changes. But nothing really happened. The first change was that Katera. They brought over an Opal, put a Cadillac badge on it. The caddy that zigs or zags, whatever they call it. And that didn't zig enough to, to sell. So they stopped with that. They tried the Elante in the early 90s. But again, that was based on a front-wheel drive platform, the same one as the Eldorado and the STS. It was based on a front-wheel drive platform. Even with the later North Star engine in 93, it's still people were like, dude, I'm not going to spend the same money on this as I could on an SL. This thing's going to be worthless in five years. The SL's not. So what they ended up doing was even guaranteeing the resale on the Elantes. How, how do you do that? You get you you have to trade the car into buy another Cadillac. Oh, that, that's how they did it. So if you traded the car in front of the Cadillac, they would give you the same money as a comparable Mercedes 560 SL or 500 SL. I promise it's going to be worth money, and I promise. Yeah, just buy another Cadillac. Yeah, and no one bought into that. So now we're getting to the late 90s, and GM is kind of, they're, they're making a lot of money, but they're not making money on Cadillacs. They're making money on Tahoes, Escalades. They're making money on trucks. So they just kind of took their eye off the prize and said, okay, let's, let's work on what we're making our money on. You know, I, I always laugh when people say, GM doesn't give us or Chrysler doesn't give us what we need. They're just giving us these big gas-guzzling trucks. And it's like, guys, you got your head up your ass. They're giving you what you buy. They're giving you what you ask for. And back in the 90s, it was SUVs. So while we're on the topic of SUVs, SUVs, excuse me, they're a little marbled word. What was the first Cadillac that signaled the major change in Cadillac? The Escalade? You got it. Or the Slade. Got to get me a Slade. That was such – that. now this is like when I was, you know, starting to get up in the driving world. Yeah. Kind of thing. This was This was it. You were – you were a gangster if you had an Escalade. Oh, this thing, let me tell you. The Cadillac, all they did, literally, they told that engineer, the, the guy of 34 years and, uh, at General Motors, they said to him, you know what, take the Tahoe and, and put a Cadillac badge on it. He looked at him and said, no way. And they said, you're fired if you don't. It's probably a conversation like that. But um, they, didn't, they didn't know what they were doing. They were just, let's try it. And it went nuts. The hip-hop community just went crazy for that car. And all of a sudden, Cadillac was back. But still, people like, you know, like Matt's parents. If Matt's parents went to a party in Greenwich and said, hey, I'm going to go look at the new Cadillac. What do you think? I'm thinking Cadillac, Mercedes, or Audi. They would have been laughed out of the party. No one took them seriously. And this 
This, my friend, begins the important Harvard business lesson. So in 2002, a young guy, an intern by the name of Bob Lutz, decides to come work for General Motors. And he is given the job of being the product czar, of really looking at every product line and seeing what can we do to make cars that people want. And sure enough, he went and looked at Cadillacs. Why? Because Bob Lutz has a love for Cadillacs. One of the cars in Bob Lutz's collection today is a stunning 1934 Cadillac LaSalle. His father owned the same exact car. Oh, that's cool. And when you come to the Peterson and visit me, I'm going to show you one just like it in a color that, let's just say Bob doesn't like. He has very colorful words for it that I don't want to share with your audience. <laughs> so he says, I'm going to make a Cadillac that people want. And he doesn't do the Alante thing where he's going to take a Cadillac and put a different body on a front-wheel drive platform. He said, you know what? We're going to start from the inside out. He made an entirely new rear-drive platform. He said, people aren't buying the front-wheel drive crap we're making. We've got to make an investment. And he went to the board. He went to Rick Wagoneer at the time and said, look, I need this. And What year is this? What's the cutoff year for this? This was, I want to say this was... This started probably pre-Bob. This is around 2000 they started development of this car. Okay. Maybe even a little earlier. So they said, I want to put an entirely new rear-drive platform together. So they made this perfectly balanced rear-drive platform. Then they went to the design team, and they said, you need to give me something just that slaps people in the face. Completely clean sheet you guys have. So what did they do? That's when they invented art and science design. And the first car you really see it on was the Escalade, where you see the, the chiseled front end, that kind of thing. But the really the first car from scratch that, that developed that new art and science design was the CTS, the first edition of the CTS. So here came this car. And I remember, and I was in technology at the time, and I looked at it, I'm like, oh my God, that's a Cadillac? And everyone said the same thing. And they sold, they sold okay. But I remember Bob telling me when they put the car in clinics, which is the, uh, the research phase where they take the badges off a car and they invite people to come in that are target buyers and they ask them questions, genuine questions about the car. And the, the, the respondents, they don't know the car, they don't know who they're talking to, so they can talk honestly. And every one of them were like, oh, my God, if that's the next BMW, we'd totally buy that. But then when they were told what it was, they were like, there's no way I'd buy that. So while they had this great car, it had this balanced chassis. Was it perfect? No. But it had this balanced chassis. It had a, a, a great engine in it. Uh, and even later version, that's when you first got the V, the Corvette 8-cylinder, went into it. All of a sudden, Cadillac, you could start taking them seriously. But here was their problem. It was their first product. So people were like, you know what? I've had 30 years of your garbage. This is nice, but I'm not taking you seriously. So let's go back to the Mr. Farah example, walking into that party in Greenwich. Hey, I'm going to go buy either a CTS, an Audi A6, or a Mercedes-Benz E-Class. What do you think? He'd be laughed out of the room about the CTS, even though it's a better car. So That's then, a stigma. That's branding. It, exact, that's 30 years of damage they have to undo. 30 years they have to undo, which is incredibly hard to do. So then, but here's the thing. 
as, as much as Rick Wagoneer, people used to crap on him, and especially the, the Obama administration, all the, the New York Times, everybody, they said, this guy, he was a terrible manager. He did, he did a terrible job running General Motors. It's Rick Wagner that invested in China. It's Rick Wagner that invested in product like the Solstice and the Sky Redline when Bob Lutz came to him and said, we need better cars. It was Rick Wagner that said, okay, I'm going to give you a pile of a dough to make an electric car called the Volt, even though I don't believe it's going to sell and make us money back. It's Rick Wagner that even though he's a, he's a bean counter, he said yes to Bob Lutz's harebrained ideas. And most of those harebrained ideas have panned out. So they wanted to put this investment into Cadillac because they realized now we're getting into 2008 and the economy falling off a cliff again. And they're saying, okay, well, what do we do here? We've got Saab, we've got Opel, we've got Saturn, we've got Pontiac, we've got Buick, we've got GMC, the government. And again, they're in the same kind of position as they were in the 70s. They had not only shareholders, but the people who basically took them out of bankruptcy, the government saying, you got to change and change fast. What do you do? And that's when Pontiac... Opal and Saab, not Opal, but Pontiac, almost Opal, and Saab all went to the wayside. But they said, you can make a case here for Cadillac, you can make a case here for Chevy, you can make even a case for Buick. It was kind of on the fence, but the only thing that saved Buick was China. Um, and oddly, they kept GMC. I don't know why. If it were me, I would have gotten rid of GMC, kept Pontiac, but that's, you know. Really? Yeah, I would have, because you already have all the trucks in Chevy. And I think Chevy is a more international brand where what you could have done was make Pontiac a, an all-rear-drive performance sedan brand and made Chevy front-wheel-drive family cars. Now you're kind of co-mingled that into Chevy. That's what I would have done, but then again, you know, $2.50, and, and what I say will get you on the New York City subway. That's interesting. Hmm. I'm going to be thinking about that later. That's interesting, because I, ha I have strong feelings that they should have you know, gotten rid of Pontiac, which is what they did yeah which one I, I i have a soft spot in my heart for pontiac but that's a discussion for the day <laughs> so anyway here we are in 2008 and they've made the decision they're going to go with the uh the four brands cadillac being rear drive and cadillac being the high-end stuff so and by the way i bought one of those you bought a what a 2007 cadillac escalade the four-door you did yeah Man, i don't know what the hell i was thinking, i but need I did. pictures of you with that thing you have to see it. It's pretty. It's pretty ridiculous. Do you still have it? Yeah. Oh no, I sold it like a year later because I was like, oh my gosh, because I I kept driving down to DC and did you buy it I new? Car... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was really was stupid. Okay, so you just proved my point. Yeah. This young it was guy so cool. It was so cool. Yeah. I, it was. It was really cool. And now, be honest with me. When you went to buy that Cadillac, did Matt and all those guys laugh at you? No, Matt was actually involved in it. And we used it. It's a little bit different. We used it. I had this brilliant business idea of um, I have a lot of friends that are in are cops and, and detectives and whatnot. And so what I did was a lot of my customers or my clients from the car wash sort of world wanted to get driven into the city with armed police officers off duty. Yeah. So I got to drive. You know, I ran the business out of that at the same time that I bought this car. So I got to drive it around and do whatever. But whenever one of my clients was like, I need to have my wife go into the city and I'm a billionaire kind of thing. Can we have one of your guys, you know, yeah. park anywhere? And anyways, that's, I bought That's why I bought a, an Escalade. So I wasn't just 
purely going to get groceries. You know, tried... when I grow up, I want to be you. Everything <laughs> yeah, yeah. you do, you make money on. I got to figure out a way to do this. Well, I, you know, it, it failed miserably because, uh, you know, it was like $600 an hour or some ridiculous price um, to make it work. But I, at the end of the day, I got my money back, yeah. but I didn't really make any money. So moving on, the point is I have wild experience with this car. And it was it was awesome and definitely a showstopper at that point when, yeah. when I first bought it. Yeah, so so you you get it, and you you have just proven the point of now. Well, here we are in what two thousand eight. That was. That was in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Okay, yeah. so now Cadillac was into its resurgence by about. I really call it for the two thousand one CTS was the first car. A lot of people would say the Escalade, the ninety eight Escalade. I would really argue it was two thousand one. So let's say it's two thousand one. They're in the, the this renaissance now. Six years. And they're just starting to get people like you to notice. Mm -hmm. So now, fast forward a year, and all of a sudden, CTS Gen 2 is coming out. And now, this CTS, Bob Lutz directly had his hand in. It wasn't a car that was already working when he was coming to the forefront. So all of a sudden, it wasn't just a rear-drive sedan with a crappy interior and a Corvette V8. They said, you know what? We're going to make a car that's even prettier than the one before, and we're going to make a car with a better interior. And it, it, you probably have seen this. They, they, they use the term cut and sew. So they have this like leather-like uh, uh, material on the dash that has double stitching like that comes out of a Bentley. They mm -hmm. put wood on it. They made the design of the interior much prettier. The first one was just, I don't know if you remember, it was literally, it looked like a, like a PS2 game console. Yeah. Where this car, the interior, was finally a beautiful car. They put the panorama sunroof in it. The manners, the driving manners in terms of the engineering were fantastic. And there was another, obviously, a, a V-series, which you and I both love today. And with that car, that's the first Cadillac where people start in 30 years now that people started to take them seriously the, after that car i remember suggesting that car to friends of mine and i stopped getting the laughs and to this point where actually the, the office i'm sitting in the friend's house i'm sitting in he owns a cattle he owns that cts um and this is a guy that's had bmw 540s had bmw uh m roadsters he's had lexus he's had infinity he's had Acura. he's had them all that's the first time that I think because I'm obsessed with the E39 M5. Yeah. I just that's I don't know what it is. I just love that car. It's amazing. When I had customers come in, I literally had them dumping BMW and then getting like wildly insane about the CTSVs exactly. and doing burnouts in the driveway. I mean, it was like it wasn't hey look at this car. It was more like look at this freaking car. I can't believe I'm doing a burnout in a Cadillac kind of thing. It was like this whole other. Look how cool this is because it's a Cadillac. Isn't that weird? That that kind of look as opposed to it's a BMW. It's, it's supposed to be cool. Exactly. Yeah. And people, so now you go into any circle. I don't care if it's my friend here who's a car guy and married now, or is it, or do you go to you're like a party and you're talking to like your your wife's friend and she's asking you about a car and you say Cadillac, she's no longer going to laugh at you. Yeah. So now let's fast forward to today. Let's fast forward to this past week. The change from the, the, the second-gen CTS to the current-gen CTS orders of magnitude more than the change from the Gen 1 to the Gen 2. How so? It's, okay, there is no longer a, it's a nice car, 
even for a Cadillac. There is no longer, you know what? For the 40 grand they're charging for it, is it's a good car. I save six grand off of the Mercedes or 10 grand off the Mercedes. It's, it is every bit as good as a Lexus, as an Acura, um, as some Mercedes. It's that good. Really? The materials that they put in that car, the design is fantastic. The, the thing that really stood out to me was the driving dynamics. There is, if you drive a current, well, I shouldn't say current, really the Gen 2 CTS. If you drive a current or Gen 2 CTS, the steering still has a little bit of that domestic numb feel unless you get to the, the V version. The transmission, while good, it, there's something disconnected about it in the base car, not in the V model. The, v. Mm-hmm. the current car, the new one, it's incredible. It is, it's got the steering of a BMW. In not the current 3 Series, the, the last 3 Series, the better steering. It's got a transmission that, let me tell you, when you shift it manually, it shifts. You feel the shifts. It's instantaneous. It's got that 420-horsepower engine, Larry. It flies. So remember what we said about the CTS-V. Now, would you believe me if I told you you could buy a Cadillac that is not a CTS-V that goes 172 miles an hour? Get the hell out. Really? 172 miles an hour. Zero to 60 in 4.4 seconds. Not a CTSV. That's bonkers. It's, and you sit in it. It's got this beautiful leather on the seats. It's got the same cut and sew, but to another level above the Gen 2 car. It's got leather suede and real satin wood on the door panels. Even the areas you don't see are covered in leather or what looks to be leather unbelievable it's an incredible step forward and in, i mean you know me i'm a bit of a freak about details and design and this car and you know what step back so you know who the chief the executive chief engineer of the car is the guy been there 34 years the designers the guy who led the exterior design what does he have at home he's got like a couple of triumphs he's got a, a, a an xj6 coupe i mean Think about classic cars. An XJ6 Coupe is a very difficult choice. You have to be dedicated. you got to be really into bespoke cars to buy yeah. that car. These are the kind of guys designing that current car. The guy that does the interior, he grew up with a father that had a 63 split window vet. All right, here, here's my question to you. If you could go back in time sort of thing in the late 70s, let's call it, Right before, would you? Would, is that a fair statement? That's right before it all went to hell, at least in my opinion. Early design, late sixties, early seventies. Yeah, it's kind of where it all went to crap. Okay, if you went back there, what would you say to them in two minutes or less? I'm from the future. Here is what's going to happen. Here's what you should do. What, like, what's the moral of the story? You know, for if you could. Roll with me there, what, just so I can kind of tough formulate one. it in my brain. Tough one. I mean, in two minutes or less, I would tell them to cut their car lines down to three. Just make three really good cars and ride it out until you get the investment back. Mm. Don't try to be all things to all people. Just make, make the DeVille, make the Eldorado or the, or the Seville, and one other car maybe. Really? Yeah. Because, right, I mean, that's like the old adage is, at least that's the way I, I was taught and the way I'm doing things. You do one thing, 
You know, I think I said this on the podcast. You did. Do one thing and be the best at it. Be the best and, at it. And that was Mr. Farah. That was Matt's father telling exactly, me. That. And I would say the same thing. I'd say, you know what? Don't try to change all your cars at the same time. So let's let's don't make it up. The, the 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 Deville. Change that one first. But put every ounce of energy in that one car. Let the other ones, maybe the sales go down for the time being. But finish that one and make it the best possible car you can. Then get to the next ones. That's unbelievable. I didn't realize the whole history of the the rise and fall. And then when I kind of did some Google searching in the 80s, I went like, oh, my God, now I remember. Yeah. I, just, I think I just blocked that whole part out for me. So I, I would tell them to do that. And, and, and like anything else, we've discussed this about business. And you and I are in the same – you and I are in the same point right now in our businesses. We are investing more in our businesses than our businesses pay us because we have a uh, long yeah. – we have a long-term vision of what we're doing. And Cadillac – and sadly, General Motors had a very short-term vision of what they were doing, and it, it, was, and it was thrust. It wasn't them really their fault, but it was thrust upon them. Really, what the government should have done was okay. The cafe requirements, yeah, we need to make changes quick, but instead of making them in one year, let's do it over five years. That takes a lot of leadership to do something like that. And Jimmy Carter was not the right leader at the time. There's no doubt about that. Wow, that is yeah, that's. That's the beginning and the end right there. Of That's the whole history of, of that's Cadillac. History, yeah. and, and think about this. And now what was my first statement? You talked about how amazing this new car was. But what was the overall statement of Cadillac? I don't know. You're quizzing me on my own podcast? I can't <laughs> yeah. remember anything. You're a businessman. You're supposed to pay attention to these things, Larry. Well, when I'm talking to you, I kind of zone out oh, because your voice is so beautiful. Yeah, yeah really, you're trying to say I'm boring. My mother's saying I'm boring. Um <laughs> Your personality is amazing. <laughs> it's one of those things. Yes, yeah. I guess that's why that's for the ladies stick around. Um, yeah. No, what I was saying was the Cadillac CTS is the textbook case of the Harvard Business Review of how to reinvent a brand. Oh, yeah, yeah. They started back in the late 1990s and said, this is a long-term investment. We know the first car is not going to sell very well. Maybe even the second car is not going to sell very well. But at least the goal is for people to take us seriously again. Now, here's a test for anybody listening here. Go to a party where you don't know anybody. And I'm sure if you're listening to this, you're, you're the car guy of your group. Go into a, a group of people that don't know anything about cars. And, of course, invariably they're going to ask you, what do you think about this car? You tell them, I think the CTS is awesome. I guarantee you nine times out of 10, they're going to say, man, you know what? I'm liking new Cadillacs. How much do these new Cadillacs cost? By the well, way? there's the rub, my friend. I was hoping you wouldn't bring that up. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking because I, I think I was talking to Matt and he was just like, for that much money, you can get X, Y, and Z. Well, here's the thing. So back in the day when they brought out the first CTS, it was kind of a tweener. It was, it was bigger than a three, but smaller than a five. And they charged a little bit more money to the three, but not much. So it was what? It was a $30,000 car at the time. Then they brought out the second gen car. And it was a little bit bigger than that car, but still a tweener, not as big as a five. And that car was a little bit more, maybe mid thirties to high thirties. And this is all starting money. And it ended at about 70 for a, you know, a 556 horsepower CTSV, which you can't touch for that. Anything with that kind of money. Well, now... They start at $46,000, which in the grand scheme of things is still about five grand cheaper than an E. But now it's no longer a tweener because they have the ATS that fights the 3 Series and is the size of a 3 Series. Then 
they've got the CTS that now fights the E and the, and, and the, and the five, but it's cheaper than those. When we get into the high zoot car, the 420 horse car I was telling you about, the one I, I, I just, just went nuts over, mm-hmm. $70,000. That's, that's a lot of coin. A lot of coin. Now, show me an E-Class or a 5 Series that has 420 horsepower and all the equipment that car has for 70, and you won't find it. But you're still going to have to ask people, will you part with 70 grand for a Cadillac? I think it's the residuals that I that I get nervous about on that. Uh, you don't have that problem anymore because remember, this is a Harvard business case. So what they've done is they've had now, what is it, 13 years to work on residuals. So a Cadillac, believe it or not, is actually somewhat good resale. Really? Not as high as Mercedes, I'm imagining, but close? Not as high as Mercedes, but I'd say a little bit better than BMW in some cases. BMW has a very unhealthy lease-to-buy mix. When a car manufacturer leases more than 65% of the cars that they sell, that's when it affects residuals. So Jaguar's in that position. Jaguar's a very high lease percentage rate. Very high. So the residuals are terrible. Same with Range Rover. Very high residuals. I mean, very high lease rates. So you could, I mean, you... You've seen the old joke, you know. You go and buy a Range Rover today for hundred grand. The same thing t- two years from now is fifty. Yeah, just like Jaguar, but you got to spend you got to spend that extra money for the mechanic that sits in the back seat. That guy. Not so much anymore. Back in the day, you did, but not so much anymore. So yeah. the residuals, yeah, I would agree with you. That's a big thing. If you if if you're worried about resale, then I would tell everybody the same thing: buy a Mercedes. Mm-hmm. If you want really good resale, buy a Mercedes E-Class station wagon in brown. Really? At That's so funny you say that. One of my friends has highest that. resale of any Mercedes. Yeah. If you if you don't want if you want bad resale, buy a Mercedes CL sixty five. Get your head handed to you. If you want to give away money, that's the fastest way to give away money. Well but you'll have fun doing this, it. it. Well you'll do it fast, yeah. yeah. Well again, man, this is this has been awesome. This is an hour's full of I didn't know any of this about Cadillac. So I'm feeling like I'm smarter than i was five minutes so now ago, you're or... smarter than the average bear now you too can go to university of pennsylvania oh yeah <laughs> i went to the university of virginia i was perfectly happy Wait, you, 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 you went to uva wahoo wah, yeah i met my wife there so you're like you're a smart kid too i have my moments but yeah wow <laughs> except when you ask me questions on the podcast I'll, uh, what did you say in the beginning <laughs> wow look at that and you know what that's funny because matt never says anything about uva he just tells me stories of you modeling with your shirt off by the way he was the one taking the pictures of it, i know so which is really worse i'm really you know now i'm starting to understand why he goes through so many girlfriends <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> hopefully he doesn't break out that old uh portfolio <laughs> oh i need those we're gonna get when you come to the peterson we'll have those waiting for you oh good thank you well as always thank you so much i think we're gonna try to uh well, you know get you forgetting something what did i forget you forgot to tell the nice people that you and i have something coming up related to cadillac which is the whole reason oh. we had this discussion in the first place oh yes thank you why don't you take it because you just remembered it and i was already moving on to the next thing because okay. i'm insane um uh larry and i are going to a special cotillion ball put on by cadillac in new york and i'm wearing a dress <laughs> <laughs> are you gonna wear the hoop dress like they wear in the south yeah no i'm gonna do the one like seinfeld when you when you walk in and then he he, he comes in and he spins you remember uh kramer you remember that one? Yeah, yeah. he rips the bag off of it exactly i always wanted a woman who had a gown that she could spin when we walked in uh, 
So yeah. uh, Larry and I are going to be going to the world premiere of the new Cadillac Escalade, the 2015. Which I will not be buying, thank you very much, because now I have a house. I have a house. You have a house and a wife. Yes. Can't be buying, I think it was 72 Gs. Oh, my God. I can't even think about that. Money, man. Back in the day. Yeah. 70, you bet, man, 72 Gs for a Cadillac Escalade, man. That's amazing. I was feeling my oaths at that point. In a Cadillac Escalade, you should have had the Porsche back then. Yeah, I know. I, I probably could have at that point. So you've dated your wife since UVA? I've been married. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've been married for five years, and we dated for six or seven years, yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. and, the, and, and the funny thing is, I saw her at the gym. I don't know where we're going with this, but I saw her at the gym all the time. And I'm like, wow, this girl's amazing. And I was a... You know, on camera now, I look very skinny or what have you. But in college, that's all you do is eat and lift. Yeah. So I was a bouncer at a bar and the whole thing. And then I saw her walking by one day and the rest is history. And I actually lost my job, I think, shortly thereafter. Because when she came in, I just went to the back and hung out with her. And then didn't cover the door. So that was oh, man. The, be the beginning well, of the end of that job. Now that I know she went to UVA, remind me not to tell her any my, my stupid comedy store jokes. Yeah, well, she went to UVA and then she went to... Uh, Columbia got her PhD. So she's, are you kidding she's me? Yeah, she's a doctor. Yeah. What is she doing with you? I, you know what? That's the only downfall she's got going for her right now. <laughs> I can only see what she says in her doctor circles at Columbia. Yeah, my my husband washes cars for a living. Yeah, I, I you know that that's thank God for the drive channels. All I have because other than that, it's been uh, I, I clean wheels for a living. And you, but you do my, it. My wife's splitting the atom. You do it very well, though. I mean, you really do it very well. Wow. So, yes, Thank so you. we're doing, you and I, we're going to film an episode of my show together mm -hmm. at the Escalade launch in New York on October 7th, and then we are going to do a podcast together from there, also about the Escalade. So, so that's, that, that's what we got going for us. It's going to be wildly amazing. Give, uh, give your plugs so these people can go watch you. Oh, yes, my plugs. And listen. Yeah, of course, that's why I'm here. Uh, you can catch us on YouTube, Motoman TV, all one word. You can catch us at Apple iTunes, Motoman TV, all one word. You can follow me on Twitter, Motoman TV, all one word. You can like us on Facebook. Guess what? Motoman TV, all one word. Same thing with Instagram. And basically, uh, I got a bunch of others, but I think that, that that's kind of that's kind of good. Oh, well, I'm that forgetting one more thing. What? Come and visit my home, the Peterson Automotive Museum on beautiful Museum Row in Los Angeles, California. We got a lot of Los Angeles people. And the thing is, they always ask me, hey, when are you going to go out there? I wouldn't be surprised if people emailed you and said, hey, I will listen to your pod, you know, on the podcast, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And the best way to get you is where? Out of all the 10 things you just said, how can they contact you? Oh, to contact me? Probably the fastest like, way to contact me to get me to respond to them is probably Twitter. Follow me on Twitter, and I'll be glad to respond to anybody there. You know? cool. And then, you know, everybody, I think you guys should email and, 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 uh, and whatever way you contact Larry. Let's get him out to the Peterson. We'll do like a special Larry Casilla cruising. Love it. Love it. But you got to bring, bring your very attractive, very smart wife. <laughs> that that's where i think the line gets drawn <laughs> she, i think she's gonna be uh busy that day she's gonna be watching her atoms yes <laughs> <laughs> sir thank you very much for having me no no i appreciate it um hopefully you'll be kind enough to come back on and give us a history of other things like what do we talk about nissan, nissan. i've got other... some very cool nissans that i've driven that i think you guys we should talk about which is cool because yes. everybody i think who listens to the, this particular podcast is uh nerdy like 
both of us and love the history and love the ins and outs and the nitty gritty of things. So I think it's a fun aspect. So if you're down with it, we'd love to have you back. We'd love to be back and uh, we'd love to chat with you again. Larry, thank you for having me. No problem. I'll talk to you soon, bud. So there you have it, Moto Man. Man, my uh, my head's about to explode. I love filling it with uh, tons of information. We're going to have him back soon and probably go over, I think, what do we talk about? Nissan. So, uh, yeah, lots of fun. Let's transition over to Facebook, and then we're out of here. So I got a question from Tyler Kaufman, and it reads, and my computer's loading. So, hey, Larry, I had a question. I recently purchased a 2001 BMW 530i. It's in pretty good condition, but the paint has suffered some abuse. It's got a number of rock chips, probably in the range of 30 to 50 chips around the car, mostly on the front. My question is this. The car is Titan Silver Metallic 354, which I guess is the paint code. Where online is a good place for me to purchase my paint? I'm looking for quality. I'm looking for something reliable, and I'm more willing to pay for a quality product. Thanks, Tyler. Okay. Tyler, my question to you, or I guess my answer to you is, but also kind of a question is, why are you not buying it from BMW? If you want to be willing to pay a little bit more, they can, they can one, uh, the first thing that they can do is they can code it really fast, meaning they're going to go in and go, da, 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 what's your VIN number? Bang, there it is. And it may have to take a day or so, so you might want to call up because I'm not 100% sure if that's a stock product. But call your local BMW dealership. It's probably going to cost you 12, 15, 19, 20, whatever, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20 bucks and have them uh, mix it up for you fresh or whatever. They may have it in stock, but I'm, I doubt that and get it from there. So that's kind of my answer slash question. I don't know why you would need to buy online unless you're in some sort of remote area, but uh, I don't know. I'm not going to make it any more complicated than it is. If you want to do, do it that way, great. I guess the other option is, uh, but you have to have some I don't want to say connections because it makes it sound weird, but friends in the industry or whatever you want to call it. It's not that I'm, you know, super cool or whatever. I just am in the body shops all the time because I'm dealing with cars. So when I do my own, I have them mix up the paint right there with the code and they're more than happy to do that. And uh, I don't think you could walk into a normal body shop and have them do that because they'll probably look at you sideways. But that's also another option if you're in the body shop world. But I guess if you're in the body shop world, you wouldn't have asked that question. So hopefully that helps. Thank you so much. Uh, I will send you an email and tell you that I answered it on the podcast. Next one is from, boy, I don't know how to say this, Jin Chow, X-I-N, last name C-H-O-O. Hey, Larry, love your show and tutorials you make for the public. Keep up your awesome work. I have heard suggestions from others about using the water from the washing machine to rinse your car. Do you think that's a good idea for a daily driver? I have to say that I have no idea what you're talking about, <laughs> um, but it sounds cool. I I can't piece together any of that in terms of usually I can find um, something that makes sense. That I, maybe his washing machine is hooked up to a to a uh, filter of some sort, and if that's the case, awesome, rock on, filter away. That's always a good thing. It helps with the drying process, but. I, I, I don't know. I read this one um, on air, so there you go. I have no idea. I I would say wash with normal stuff and definitely don't use machine washing machine to rinse your car, um, especially if it's dirty. But I, uh, moving on. <laughs> that was probably the most interesting email ever. All right, uh, another one here, reading it on the fly. Adam Sturk, S-T-I-R-K. And his email, once it loads, will say, Hey, Larry, love the vids and PDF. 
Quick question, though. I like the clang technique you use of using washing, wash soap and a mitt to lube the paintwork. It seems a lot quicker in using than spray lube and wiping down. But do you rinse each section afterwards or just do the whole car and then go around and dry it? Much love from the UK. Adam, this is a great question. And there's lots and lots of... Uh, it's multifaceted, as they would say. So the question, the answer is yes and no. So would I rinse down each section? The, an- the answer to that is Yes, I would in particular amount of heat and or sun. So if you're working on a black car and you're in direct sun, then obviously you're going to have to um, rinse down the car. But inherently with that process, if you're going to if you want to go back a few more you know steps here, that means you've already washed the car and you probably haven't dried it because you're about to get it wet again. So in this particular scenario where it's very, very hot and it's a black car, I wouldn't recommend you doing it anyways because the water is going to be sitting on the other side of the car. Does does that sort of make sense? So um, that's why sometimes it's hard to answer these questions, you know, without a relative or basis or where are you? What is it with humidity, the time, you know, all that kind of thing. So I can give you a specific answer. That's scenario one. So uh, yeah, you'd want to rinse it down, but the caveat is, uh, or the other, uh, the flip side of the coin is if you're doing it in really crazy sun, you probably don't want the rinse water sitting on there anyways now move to something maybe a little bit more realistic for me the answer is i do one section at a time and i don't rinse it down just for speed purposes remember at the end of the day i have lots of cars to do i need to do them perfect but i can't spend seven hours on one car for a hundred dollars or something i just i wouldn't be able to support my family so you gotta learn to be very exact with what you're doing and utilize um the things that that situation gives you. When I mean things, are you in the sun? Are you not in the sun? Are you inside the garage? Are you outside the garage? Is the paint black or is it silver? Is it so? There's all these little factors that come in, so it's very hard to give a yes. Do this. Do that. Do that. It's not cookie cutter, as I um, probably say too much. So in a garage setting, the paint is cool. It's already been cleaned and it's it's still got water sitting on it. Absolutely, I will go. And only thing I'm dipping up and down is I'm, you know. Uh, crushing the the clay bar and getting it nice and clean you know you know what i mean by that Uh, kneading the clay if you will so it's a clean surface and i'm dunking my wash mitt in in the water up and down up and down up and down and then uh read you know applying lubrication that way so that answers that question oh my gosh it is uh pretty late at night on sunday and i want to thank everybody for listening we'll try to do uh as many podcasts as humanly possible but i want to make sure that they're packed with good stuff so when you listen you know you're going to get something worth listening to remember it's quality not quantity i guess that's my excuse for being so busy but anyways we're going to shoot some more videos um and check out my youtube page ammo nyc d-o-t-c-o-m so it's ammo nyc.com but you just spell it all out because youtube doesn't let you use a dot for dot com of course, visit me on Instagram, Ammo NYC. Uh, I also have my personal Instagram, which I probably should change around, but that's Ammo Auto Care, or look up my name, Larry Casilla. Of course, you can email me at Larry at AmmoNYC.com. I'm doing my very, very, very best to respond to a lot of emails. I know I'm months behind on some, um, but I'm getting so many. I'm, I'm trying to help everybody I can possibly get a hold of, and I appreciate it very much. Check out the Drive channel that I will be on there soon. And, of course, Moto Man. Uh, he gave you 5,000 things to go listen to because he's the man. He's going to be coming out very soon. But basically, Moto Man TV on pretty much everything you possibly uh, can do, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera. 
Smoking Tire, I want to thank Hooniverse is amazing. Shout Engine, the man that makes all this possible, Chris Hayes. You got to go look at his website, shoutengine.com. And of course, my very own website, ammonyc.com, where you can see a bunch of cool things. I am going to be giving a speech or a seminar or whatever you want to call it in January. I'm going to find the exact day. I'm shuffling papers right now. Hang with me. Uh, it's in January at some point. Here it is. It's January 9th, 10th, and 11th at the Mobile Tech Expo in Orlando, Florida. If you want to know more about that, shoot me an email or Google search the Mobile Tech Expo. I will be there hanging out for three days with a bunch of detailing nerds. So it's going to be fun. If you guys want to visit, come down there and you're going to learn all about the mobile tech industry. For me, that's it. I love you guys. I will talk to you soon. And as always, give me, uh, shoot me an email or hit me up on Facebook if I can help. I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye.